If you've been following along, you'll know that we've reached chapter 11 of Hebrews. So that's what we're going to look at. It's possible that... I just had a thought. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we want to say thank you that you've called us to a life of faith. Lord, we say it over and over again. We talk about faith and our faith. And Lord, we thank you that your word gives us a clear idea as to what that means. And we want to pray, Lord, now, that as we look at your word together, that you'll give us an even better grasp of what it means to be people of faith. So, Lord, we ask you now by your Holy Spirit to unfold your word to us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. So, as I was saying, it's it's possible that this is the best-known part of the letter to the Hebrews, one that people often turn to when particularly when they're looking for examples of heroes of the faith. I'd like us to consider just why the writer of this letter has put this chapter where he has. I'm sure you're as convinced as I am that the books of the Bible are... They're not there by accident. They're not put there haphazardly. They have a reason for being shaped the way that they are. And this is actually a classic example of how sometimes the chapter divisions in our Bibles are not helpful and are clearly not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the division between chapters 10 and 11 interrupts the flow of the writer's argument. So to put it in its context or in its flow, um, we need to go back to chapter 10 and verse 34. And I'm going to read from there and then into the first six verses of chapter 11. So, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those 
who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Thank God for his word. So, to get into the flow of what the writer is saying, we need to look for a moment back at chapter 10 and verse 34, where he's talking to this group of people who've been going through a difficult time, maybe still going through it. And he says this of them, that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. He said, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This describes the kind of life that the whole letter is aiming to produce. One that looks at the high price of love, what Jesus did for us, and then accepts the possibility, joyfully, that it will be costly for us too. So this, he wants, he's, he's aiming to see a, a group of people who are able to have a different perspective on life that will give them the courage to live for God. All the great truths that um, we've been studying and reveling in over the past months is aimed practically at making us into this kind of people. There's a pattern in the structure of this letter that you find in most of the New Testament letters. Theology or doctrine or teaching followed by a so or therefore or as in Hebrews 11, now. Okay, So there's a connection. So he's laid out this fantastic doctrine of what Jesus came to do to fulfill the law and what he's come to make possible for us. Having done that, he says, 
because of all that, 10 chapters for all, now we come to so. Now, therefore, we've looked at the wonderful history and plan of God and his dealings with mankind. And the fact that in Jesus, he's made it possible for us to come to know him as our father. Wonderful. And now the writer is wanting to show us the impact all this should make on our lives. To become people who would risk everything to bring the love of God to others. Who know as... um, C.T. Studd. You remember C.T. Studd? One person. Um, He said, you may have heard this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He also went on to say, some wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, that's got nothing to do with what I want to say. But um, verse 20, uh, 34 then of chapter 10 makes it clear that that sort of life, the sort of life that C.T. Studd is talking about there, comes through an unshakable hope that's fixed on God beyond this life. If you don't live with that great confidence, you will be... Uh, you will be only thinking about this life and how much you are losing out every time you make a sacrifice for others. If that's all you think about is this life and what you've got, then every time you're asked to give it away, you'll struggle. Whereas if you have an understanding that you have a better possession and an abiding one that is yet to come, that you've begun to live in, you can let go of some of those things. It's quite pertinent for today, I think, for us. Only it's it's too late, really, because you've already done it. But there is that sort of sense that, you know, I, I can give this to that because I've got a better possession. I don't need to hang on to these things now. I can be more generous take risks even with the things that I have. If you have this confidence, you feel free to let things go when you're asked to. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, the writer to the Hebrews then goes on in chapter 11 to define faith for us. What is it? The whole letter is written um, to give us a basis for the hope that is the foundation of a life of radical, risk-taking, sacrificial love. And in chapter 11, the writer presents us with a catalogue of people who have laid hold of the future reward 
of joy with God so much that it makes a radical difference to life here and now. The chapter begins with a definition of faith that links it to hope and then goes on to show how this hope gives us strength for all kinds of obedience that God may present to us. Remember again what it said in those last couple of verses in chapter 10 where it says, My righteous one shall live by faith. And then verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says that faith is the assurance or confidence of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In effect, he's saying you, you have a better possession that will last forever and that will affect the way you live here and now. The writer says two things there about faith. One, it is the assurance of things hoped for and two, it's the conviction of things not seen. Let's look at the, the two parts of that definition. Assurance and conviction. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Ask yourself the question, how do you know that you have faith? How do you know? We would all say we've, we've probably got it, but how do you know? How do you know that? What is faith? So you can know if you have it or not. Well, let's take these two parts of that definition in reverse order. Okay, so first of all, it's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Some, some translations of the Bible say it's the evidence of things not seen. The example of this, given in verse 3, is, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. What does that mean? How is faith evidence or conviction? Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived or understood ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Faith is the spiritual seeing or perceiving of the fingerprints of God on the things that he has made, the things that he has done. We can talk about creation. About our own lives. We can look back at the things that God has done and acknowledge that it is. That's, we can see the fingerprints of God over our lives. 
But we can see also in the things that he has made. We can go out and look at the, the beauty of God's creation. And we can say, God did that. We look at that and we see the hand of God and the things that he's created. David Attenborough would look at it and say, that's sort of coincidence or science or something or other. But we would look at it and say, no, God did that. Not nature, not mother nature, whoever she is. But God did that. Our creator did that. Faith says that looks at the things that have been made and sees the work of God in it. The order, the beauty, the complexity, the greatness and the wonder. Evidence that God made the world. Now, we all look at the same evidence. We all see it. Uh, Everybody in this room, we see it. Everybody that you will meet tomorrow has seen it. We look at the same evidence, but some see the fingerprints of God, some don't. That's the difference that faith makes. Um, about 20-something years ago, Julie and I went to New Zealand. And when we were in New Zealand, we were, some friends of ours who lived there were taking us around, showing us the sights, and um, took us into a shopping mall, <laughs> like you do. And as we were walking through the shopping mall, we discovered, our friend said, come and look at this. And on the window of one of the shops there, there was a large one of these. The, if you've seen one of these, it, some people call it a magic picture, <laughs> some people call it a 3D picture. But it's one of those things, our friends told us, that if you look at it long enough, you'll see something. <laughs> so you have to... So there we were in a shopping mall outside this shop with our nose, noses fixed against this window looking at this thing. And he kept saying, just look at it long enough just focus, just look. <laughs> we're just, we couldn't see it. But actually, I've practiced, and I found this one on Google Images, <laughs> and so I've been practicing on it. And actually, it's a skull and crossbones. It's amazing, because suddenly your, your brain goes click, and you can see something that you can't see. You can practice afterwards. The reason I'm using that as an illustration is, is that some people look at what God has made and they don't see. They don't see God in that at all. Whereas you and I can look at what God has made and say, I can see God there. When I was a boy, my, um, my older brother, um, he was fascinated with astronomy. He, he just was fascinated with the stars. He and I shared a bedroom, and the, the, the window was between our beds. And my brother would stand and look out at the, the sky at night. And he'd, he'd say, Chris, come and look at this. Isn't it wonderful? And I'd sort of um, sleepily get out of bed and stand next to him and say, 
Mm. Stars, isn't it? Yeah. It's night. I'm tired. I'm not going back to bed. So it had no effect on me at all. It did for him. Move forward 20-something years. Um, I, was, um, I was in Canada, and I was working on a youth camp there. And I had the, the job one, one night of taking a group of teenage boys out on a hike, a night hike, and at some point, we had to sleep in sleeping bags on the ground, no tent or anything, and just laid there looking at this, this clear sky. And, you know, no, no interference by artificial lights anywhere, just the sky. And I can remember looking at that and saying to whoever was listening to me, God did that. God did that. There had been a transformation that had taken place in me since I was a young boy with my brother. The point I'm hoping I can make is that's what faith does. It, it, it opens your understanding, your appreciation to, what, to who God is and what he's done. Faith is not just a responding act of the soul. Um, or believing a set of facts. It is also a sort of grasping or perceiving or an understanding act. It's a spiritual act that sees the hand of God, the fingerprints of God. This doesn't mean you believe them into being. You know, some people have got that idea of faith is that if I believe this hard enough, then something will happen. You know, it's like, whatever. I'm, I want to believe that this situation will change. If I, believe, if I really believe it hard enough, it'll happen. Faith, that's not what faith is. Faith is based on real truth. It's not just what you imagine. It's, it's the truth. It, it looks deeply at the world that God has made. It sort of looks through it and by the grace of God sees the glory of God standing back from creation and seeing his works. Now, that's the basis. It's one of the basis of faith. You know, whatever situation we're facing, whatever things we're having to deal with in our life, this is where we start. It's not, you know, sort of a, a wrestling with that, that particular situation, but somehow standing, if you can, to stand back from it and acknowledge God and who he is. So the, the second part of the definition of faith is that it's the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. So it's, a, it's, it's first of all, seeing what you can't, you know, seeing that God has created out of, out of the invisible God has created. The second part is the assurance and substance of things hoped for. Faith doesn't create what we hope for. That would be a, a, a silly mind game. Faith is a spiritual perceiving or tasting 
or sensing of the beauty and wonder and goodness of what God has promised. Faith spiritually takes hold of and tastes and appreciates what chapters 1 to 10 describe. That the fellowship and presence of God is real and is a down payment of the fullness that is eventually coming. Remember what it said back in 1034. You know that you have a better possession and an abiding one. That's your hope. That's, your, that's the promise that God has given to us. Faith takes hold of that. This is what God has said. It must be true. I base my faith upon what he has said. So here's a conclusion regarding what faith is. There's a lot more that you could say about faith, and some of that may come out as, as we go through the rest of this chapter. But here's a conclusion. Faith is a kind of spiritual seeing of the invisible fingerprints of God in the things that he's made. And it's a kind of spiritual tasting of what God has promised so that we feel a deep and confident assurance of things hoped for. By the one, we know God's power and wisdom to make us. And by the other, we know his goodness and grace to save us and give us eternal life. Right. We haven't finished with Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 6 yet. Hebrews 11 is here, then, to help us become the kind of people described back in the end of chapter 10. The original readers of this letter knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. That's how the writer describes them. That's what got them through life. Then, the whole of chapter 11 fleshes out and demonstrates multiple stories of people who lived by faith with the intention that those people would be heroes for us, that we can imitate with that same faith and can inherit the same promises of God. You may remember back in chapter 6 when we were there, I remember it because I preached on it, but <laughs> in verses 11 and 12 it said, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so the writer has made it very clear much earlier on, say that's, that's what I want to focus, this is where I want to bring you. and give you examples of people who've lived like this so that you can imitate them. You can aspire to be like them. Remember, this letter was written to people who were or had been going through trials and challenges. That's the point of, of Hebrews 11, to give examples of those who, who through faith and patience, inherit the promises. They're our heroes. 
We need to value them and look at them and see what we can learn from the way they lived. Also, when we eventually get to chapter 13 and verse 7, we'll read, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So that, that could refer to the elders here, your leaders. It could refer to others who've been your leaders in the past or those who have been leaders in the church from the New Testament days right down until today. You look back and see these wonderful people that have lived with a confident faith in God and you see them in... You, you must have done it. Read stories of people that have been Christians years and years ago, centuries ago, some, some of them. Read biographies of them and think, oh, that's what I want to be like. That's the sort of person I want to be. And that's exactly what the writer here is saying. You know, find some of those people. Look at them. Be challenged by it. And emulate their faith and their belief and their strong courage. These are our heroes of faith. So the writer is exhorting, strongly encouraging and urging the people of God to push forward. Come on, don't give up yet. Or don't give up ever. Don't go back to the old ways. We've been seeing that. Don't go back to the old stuff. Push on. You, not push off, push on. You, you can't drift along, he's saying, in the way of life that we've been called to. We, we can't just drift along. We have, to, we have to be doing this. Where do I see the fingerprints of God? Where, where can I see God, what he has done, what he's doing? See it in the creation, see it in the lives of people around me. Where can I see the hand of God at work? Nearly finished. To underline this, we need to go back to verse 2 of chapter 11, which we've skated over or not even mentioned. He says, therefore, by it, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. And in verses 4 to 5, we have two examples of this. The first one is Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The first church where I was pastor was over in Caversham, the other side of Reading. And um, it was a sweet little chapel. Oh, it's still there. It's a little chapel and, um, with a tower and everything. And um, in one corner of the building on the outside, there's a, there's, a, there's a gravestone fixed to the wall. And on it, it says that James Dadswell who died in 1825, is buried here. That, that isn't where they buried all their old pastors, but that was one there. 
And underneath is the inscription, He being dead, yet speaketh. And my children, growing up in the house right next door to the chapel, used to go over there and... <laughs> Does he really? <laughs> I may have encouraged that sort of belief. Anyway, um, but, what, but of course what, what it's saying, it's a quote from this, it's basically saying like Abel, even though he's dead, his testimony, his experience, his example still speaks to us. And it shows us Abel's example is that it's not just what we do that matters, but how we do it. So we don't do things out of a sense of religious duty or whatever. We do it by faith, acknowledging the presence of God in this and the promises of God in these things. Do our actions express the, the assurance of things hoped for? Are we able to look at our circumstances and say, yeah, this is tough. I'm working through this. But I know I have a better possession eventually. I know I am saved. I know I have the promise of eternal life. And then he goes on to mention Enoch, who walked with God. And that's why he pleased God. That's what it says here. He was commended because he walked with God. So Abel and Enoch pleased God. Therefore, though it's not mentioned in the Old Testament that they lived or walked by faith, the fact is they must have done what they did by faith because without faith it's impossible to please God and they pleased God. Does that make sense? So they must have, must have acted by faith because it pleased God and you can't Please, God, without faith. Okay, that's simple. I think that's very simple. So why does faith please God? The foundation of this statement is that you can't please God without faith because he who comes to God, this is what it's saying, must believe that he is, look at his works, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Look at his promises. The writer doesn't tell us why God is pleased by these two aspects of faith. He just says he is. So we might say, why are you pleased? Because I can look at what you've created and, and acknowledge. Your, why, why does that please you? I think God says, it doesn't matter why it pleases me. I'm telling you that it does please me when you do that. And when you believe my promises, it pleases me. And you might say, why? And God says, it doesn't matter why, it pleases me. And we have those, those verses. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the writer doesn't tell us why God's pleased, but he tells us that he is pleased when two things about him are reflected in our relation to him. The first one is 
that he's real, that pleases him, and that he's rewarding, that pleases him. So, God exists absolutely, he said. That pleases him. When we acknowledge that, when we acknowledge that he is who he is, you know that phrase people say nowadays, don't they? It's like, um, it is what it is. Well, God says, I am what I am. And he is what he is. He says, that's, that's one element of faith. And the other is, God is so full and he is rewarding. He is so full and so completely self-sufficient that he overflows. He is rewarding. To know him is reward in itself. To know his promises are for us is reward in itself. He is rewarding. Rather than needing our service, he's like a never-ending spring of life and energy and joy and beauty and goodness and power. Therefore, it pleases him when we come to him in a way that affirms this and delights in it when we come to him as a rewarder. So, let me finish by coming back to chapter 11, verse 1. What we see in Hebrews is that the nature of faith and the life of faith is rooted in what God is like, not what we are like, and in what he promises. You don't find out what Christian faith is by considering what you feel. You find it by considering the nature of God. That's why we praise him and exalt him. That's why we did what we did for the first part of this service together, this time together. We declare who God is. That's not just because we like the tunes. It's not, it's not like because it's what we're meant to do as Christians. We have to, we have to do a bit of singing to you know, warm us up in time for someone to preach. It's, it's, it's us declaring the fingerprints of God when we say, this is who you are. This is who you are. I've been, I've been living out there in this world that just doesn't see it. All week I've been with people that just don't see it. They don't see it. So today when I come together with my brothers and sisters, I'm saying, this is him. This is what he's like. This is what he does. So therefore, if you want your faith to be strong, it's not a matter of screwing your eyes up and hoping for the best. Faith is, or the way to faith is, know your God. Just know your God. Appreciate him. Sort of drink in his promises because that will make you the person that God wants you to be. Amen. Shall I pray? Okay. <laughs> um. Lord, I just remember how um, David the psalmist 
begins, he says it quite often, I think. He said, I love your law. I love your words. I love what you say. I just love it, Lord. It's not, that, it's not just that I, I enjoy reading it. Or I love it. I love what you say. I love what you reveal to us, what you unfold for us. I love the way that you speak to us. The way that this, this word that was written thousands of years ago still speaks into our hearts. It's a living and active word, Lord. And, and I pray, Father, now for, for us, Lord, for me, as all of us, Lord, that we, we, will, we will grow to be better at being people of faith. Lord, that we would, would have a clearer view of who you are day by day. See what what you've done and what you're doing. See, Lord, your fingerprints on our history, on our lives, on the lives of these people in your word and in your creation, Lord. Just to acknowledge that. And also, Lord, help us to get hold of the promises that you've made, particularly this promise of salvation through Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. Help us, Lord, to get hold of that too, that it's something deep, deep within us day by day. May we become people, Lord, that bring glory to you by the way we live. Lord, we ask it because of Jesus and for his name's sake. Amen.